Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. We continue our History 101 lecture series with Arabic Islam. From Muhammad to Mongols, part one, geography and culture. So we have a lot of a lot of titles on this episode. But we start with one of the largest religions and ethnic groups in the world begins in a desert, in the Arabian desert. It's a large desert, and it is south of Mesopotamia, east of the Nile, west of the Indus. It's the middle of nowhere. And yet, by being south of Mesopotamia, east of the Nile, and west of the Indus, it's the middle of three major civilizations. So because it's the middle of nowhere, it's poor. It's divided. It do, because it's in a desert, it doesn't have the water supply to make large cities. And so their social organization is tribal. They're small groups. They're divided. They're poor. And they spend most of their time fighting each other. There are there are villages and towns and entities you could call cities, but there's no Alexandria. There's no Constantinople. There's no Babylon. This is not the water for it. These are oasis and trade towns along caravan routes. So the Arabs are small, divided, poor. In fact, Roman emperors didn't even guard the desert frontier. They weren't even worried about it. Persia, worried about. Lots of forts, fought lots of wars in Mesopotamia. The Byzantines and the Persians fought continuously for about 200 years for who would control the Middle East. But the border with Arabia, one emperor said, well, let's let loose some lions. That will take care of the problem. It just wasn't an issue until it became an issue. So what changes? Well, it changes with the coming of Muhammad, whose dates are approximately 570 to 632 AD. These are all AD. So who is Muhammad? Well, he's a pious merchant. Well, what does that tell you? Well, that tells you a bunch of things. That he's a pious merchant tells you a lot. First, he's pious, which means he takes religion seriously. Now, he's a polytheist because the Arabs are polytheists, but they live in a world where there's Judaism, where there's Christianity, where there's Zoroastrianism, which are all monotheistical when you throw in Zoroastrianism. You know, they're all more or less, they're not Hinduism with the thousands of gods or the Greek-Roman polytheism with their thousands of gods. They're fairly limited. So he's so he's he's living in a world where he's coming into contact while being a polytheist with the gods of the desert, the gods of his ancestors. He's coming into contact with these new belief systems. 
He's also a merchant, which means he's worldly. He's not poor. He's not some farmer in the desert, you know, farming moisture, you know, on Tatooine. He is a merchant. He's coming into contact with people. He's worldly. He knows about the world outside of his tribe, outside of himself, his tribe, and Arabia. He's coming into contact with people from Egypt and from Judea and from, from Judean refugees being cast off hundreds of years earlier by the Romans, right? By people fleeing the destruction of the Roman Empire, by the wars in Persia and Mesopotamia. He's coming into contact with all of these people. Two, he is visited by the angel Gabriel. The tradition is he is visited by the angel Gabriel. And that is incredibly important because what does that mean? He is given a revelation by the God of Abraham. The angel Gabriel is, if you've ever watched a movie, um, Dogma, it's Alan Rickman in that movie. That's Angel Gabriel. It's the voice. And actually, Dogma has a good reason why it's the angel Gabriel constantly. It's the angel Gabriel who comes to Moses and says, Moses, uh, you're going to, first, you're not Egyptian. Second, you're Jewish. Third, uh, you got too much bippy on your bippy. And fourth, um, you're going to have to set your people free. Sorry, but that's what you're going to have to do. It's the angel Gabriel who comes to Abraham and says, stop, don't, don't murder your child. What the hell, man? We gave you a ram. It's right over there. Really? You humans. It's the angel Gabriel who comes to Noah and says, yeah, you might want to build a, a boat and uh, make a room for lots of poo. It will be important. And dogma has a good reason, like, because you can't fathom the glory that is the, the voice of God. Your mind would just explode. And so very few char characters in the Bible, very few characters in the Bible, um, meet God in all of God's glory. And when they do, they are inevitably changed. Moses does and comes off the mountain old, older. You know, inevitably changed. It's like Odysseus going to the land of the dead and coming back with the gray eyes. It's, you're, you cannot fathom the glory that this is and still be you. You, you have to change. That's why you can't get to heaven as a mortal. You have to die. Your soul can get there, but your body cannot. So the angel Gabriel is the God of, is an angel of the God of Abraham. Now, who is the God of Abraham? The God of Abraham is Yahweh, the Jewish God. It is Jehovah, J-E-H-O-V-A-H, the Christian version of this God, God 2.0, and so, and is Allah, which is God, and it's the newer version, it's God 3.0. Which is interesting because as God 3.0, it really in some ways is God 1.5. Because it goes back, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. It kind of is closer to Judaism than it is to Christianity. It will take Christian stuff, don't, don't worry. Like heaven, it's going to be a big one. 
but it 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 is the angel of the God of Abraham that comes to Muhammad to give him the revelation to be a prophet, to be the last prophet. Now, here's the interesting asterisk that gets put on that. Now, this is I'm spending time on this because even right now, in the moment I am speaking, people are freaking out that a little girl gave the Pledge of Allegiance in her class and said Allah instead of God. When Allah is God, and God is Jehovah, and Jehovah is Yahweh, they are all the same God. They are all the same being. The religions have different understandings of who that being is and how best to worship that being. So Judaism is kind of God 1.0. You could you could go with, if you like your software, that Hinduism, which starts with a universal God and then breaks apart from that, is kind of like the beta version of God, God 0.75, right? Because you start with one God, and then, I mean, you know, look at Christianity, right? You've got your saints. Saints have godlike powers. You've got your trinity. The tr trinity, by definition, is three. And you go, well, they're all, you know, different aspects of the same one thing, just like the band Rush has three members, but is really just one band. And you're like, yes. But if you're a peasant being told to worship one God, you can count the three and go, God, Son, Holy Ghost, that's three. And, you know, you have to get into complicated Greek, you know, philosophical physics to get around that the Trinity is really one, but it's three aspects of the same thing. And, oi, oi, oi. And so... So you have Hinduism as kind of the beta version, God 0.75, of having a monotheistic God that then breaks up into lots of different aspects. You have Zoroastrian, which is kind of like a God 0.85, you know, 0.90. You have uh, Judaism, God 1.0, that is that will become monotheism. Now remember, it goes through monolatry to get there. So it needs, it needs if you're an MMO fan, it needs some patches, patches and expansions to get to God 1.0. But it gets to one, God 1.0. Christianity comes along and says, we are the new, better version. So um, and another way of thinking about it, Judaism is kind of like um, Windows 3.1, Windows 95. And Christianity is the more popular, bigger Windows XP. That goes on for a long time. And then uh, Islam is, sees itself as kind of Windows 10, Windows 7, 8, 10, that type of thing. It's, it's an update from, it still looks like Windows, but it's updated. So I spend time on this because you have to understand this. These are not, these religions are all cousins. They're all related. You will one day, if you are a believer in the God of Abraham and you're a good person, you will go to heaven. You will go to an afterlife. I know Judaism doesn't have a heaven and it's... But then there's this judgment. And so on the timeline of forever, you end up in the presence of the God of Abraham. You may be at a party 
We're a being, a man, a woman, a they, a dog comes by with a little name tent that says, hi, my name is Yahweh, Jehovah, Allah. That's God. That's God is just a title. But that is the God you've been praying to. That when people refer to God, that's God. Now, let's also deal with this. God is trans. God is trans. Let's just deal with this right here, right now, because we kind of dealt with it earlier. And this is going on right now, too. God is not a man. Though we say father in Christian and Judaism, and I think Islam does, too. I honestly don't know. Um, but God is a man. God is not a man. God is a being, right? Remember, we talked about monotheism, that we are talking about a um, being that is beyond man, woman. It is an it. It is a being. It's a platonic ideal, as as uh, St. Augustine tells us. You know, to him it was, it was embodied as a, as a perfect emperor. But it's an it, which sounds insulting to call it an it, but it's beyond our reason to understand. God has no body. God is a being. God is whatever God wants to be. So God is trans because God identifies with whatever God wants to be at the moment God identifies at being it. Because Yahweh, Jehovah, and Allah is all things and limited by no thing. To say I am a man is to also say I am not a woman. Right? That's a limitation. This God has no limitations. So, so that's a big fight that's going on right now in the popular culture over, you know, whether God loves trans people. Well, God has no body. God is whatever God wants to be. God is whatever uh, this being wishes to present themselves as at that moment to you. So... There is no limitation on God. So that's what this is all kind of about. I'm sorry to take a little bit of time, but I kind of want to, because I need to get it here. Because we're, we don't have another chance to talk about it. We talk about it a little bit with Judaism. And so now we have to talk about it here because right now there's a lot of racism in the world um, and in America tied to terrorism and tied to um demographic change and it's it's this fear of islam and it's it, islam is the same god it just is now here's a point Islam is closer to Judaism than the Christianity. And you may not understand that because you may have grown up, especially if you're of a certain age, closer to my age than, um, but you have grown up in a world where Islam and Judaism seem to be at war with each other all the time. That is a 20th century creation for the most part. It's not to say that everyone got together all the time, always, but remember, the Holocaust was a Christian thing. 
Jews in the world were always, in history, more threatened by Christians than Islam. In fact, Islamic kingdoms were perfectly happy to have Jewish citizens settle there. The Jewish uh, quarter in Istanbul is one of the oldest and safest places for Jews in the world. Morocco took in Jews that were kicked out of Spain in 1492 at the end of the Reconquista. So, why? Well, because they're co-religionists. It's the same God. Here's the thing, and this is why Islam is closer to Judaism. It's Christianity that's the weird one. Of the three cousins, Christianity is the weird one. Why? Because Muhammad shouldn't exist. Peace be upon him, but Muhammad shouldn't exist. He shouldn't be the last prophet. Jesus is supposed to be the last prophet. So why do you end up with Muhammad? Well, because Jesus came and you get Christians. And what did Christians do? They made him a god. He's a prophet that Christians turned into a god. My Lord, Jesus Christ, right? They turned Jesus from a man, a good man, but a traditional Jewish prophet into God. And Islam's job is to fix that, is to bring Jesus back into prophet status and to kind of fix the problems that Christianity creates. And why does Christianity create them? Because it's not Judaism anymore. It's not a Middle Eastern religion. It is a Roman religion. So it takes on a lot of things that the Romans take on. Like, for example, the images of God. Images of God, images of Jesus, images of... We have, uh, if you're looking at the video now, uh, there is an Indian drawing of the angel Gabriel coming to Muhammad. There are plenty of pictures of Muhammad made. A lot of them are outside of the Arabic tradition. But there is a second commandment. That second commandment is no graven images. Well, we talked about this with the Byzantines. Christianity has lots of graven images all over the place. Because they're talking, trying to talk to a illiterate population. They need images to focus the mind. They need images to show you who these people were. But it's still against the second commandment to Moses. It's things like that. Um, Christians eat pork. You're not supposed to eat pork. Christians are not circumcised. You're supposed to get circumcised. And in all these ways, Islam is closer to Judaism. So despite being God 3.0, it's kind of like a throwback to being like God 1.5. It's an update of Judaism. And it's trying to fix the problems Christianity made by being Roman. And those problems are fixed in a book called the Quran, which I used the old school spelling with a K, K-O-R-A-N. Feel free to use the Q, the Q apostrophe. 
the Quran is the revelation given to Muhammad. And there's a couple different traditions. There's the traditions that that um, the angel Gabriel gives it whole cloth as a giant book to Muhammad. There's the tradition that he speaks to Muhammad and Muhammad writes it down. There's a couple of different traditions as I understand it. Again, I'm not a scholar of these things. But um, we're talking 1,400 years and many different branches and there's many different traditions. But what all those traditions agree on is it's a complete guide to living. It tells you what you need to know about how to live the good life. It tells you when to get up in the morning. It tells you what to do during your day. It tells you what government to live under. It tells you how to treat your wife. It tells you whether or not to educate your kids. It tells you how to deal with your neighbors. It is a complete guide to living. It is also, and this makes it different than the Bible, it makes it different than the Judaic books and the Christian books. It is considered to be the literal word of God, that it came directly from God in the different forms that I have expressed. The Jewish and the Christian tradition is the Bibles are inspired, but they are written over a long period of time. God did not sit down at a typewriter because he did not sit down at a word processor. And I know I use the word he, but I will f I'm old, so I fall into that. But God did not sit down. Yahweh, Jehovah, did not sit down at a word processor circa 1993. Yahweh, Jehovah, obviously sat down at a Corona or an Underwood typewriter down the Jersey Shore, took his time, wrote out the Quran, handed it to Gabriel and said, go back in time, go see Muhammad, give this to him. He's in a cave. Go find him. Maybe he used a fountain pen and ran it out by hand. Maybe. But I see, I see Jehovah. I, I just see Jehovah Yahweh as old school. Like, you know, just old school. Yeah, with a little bit of, of, of flair, you know. Maybe, maybe, maybe he has some sealing wax, right? But either way, it's supposed to be the little word of God. What is the advantage of this? The advantage is it tells you how to live and you know that it's right, right? By being the literal word of God, you know that it is right. You do not argue with it. It is from God. It is the literal word of God. It is correct. Every period is correct. Every comma is correct. Every allusion is correct. It is correct. And it also tells you how to live the good life. So you don't have to question it. It's fine. It's good. It tells you everything you need to know. Great. So it gives a certainty to your life. It gives a stability to your life. You can rely on the Quran in a way you cannot rely on anything else. What is the disadvantage of the Quran? Now, the disadvantage, just in case you're getting a little upset about seeing disadvantage, is that it's not anything in the Quran. It's how the Quran is constructed. We'll talk about why it's a disadvantage. 
You have to understand the Quran is a complete guide to living for everyone, not just for Arabs, but for everyone. It starts with Muhammad, but Muhammad is supposed to be, and this is a Roman national concept that we'll talk about later, that goes into jihad. But the idea is the world should be Muslim. It can be Jewish and it can be Christian, but it really should be Muslim. Now you may go, well, that's mean, but that's not true because that's the way the Christians thought. Why? Because the Christians were Roman and the Romans thought the world should be Roman. That's Nashio. And so Christianity from the very beginning thinks the world should be Christian. That's why when I get a knock on the door, I open the door and there's a very nice looking man with, or sometimes it's a young woman, they're wearing a nice little black tie, and they're like, have you heard about, have you been saved by my Lord Jesus Christ? It's never Jews knocking on my door saying, how about you become Hasidic? Never. And I've never gotten a knock on the door saying, can I show you the revelation of Allah? But it's always Christians being like, how about I save and you could be born again in the glory and the power of Jesus? Why? Because they believe the world should be Christian. That's the Roman concept. That's Nashio. So in that context, the Quran has two major disadvantages. First, it is written in poetry. Beautiful poetry. I have seen linguists who have discussed this at conferences say it is some of the most beautiful stuff ever written in Arabic, in Persian, in this in this language group. It's, the, it's roomy, even better. It is some of the best, most beautiful written stuff, poetry, in the Islamic tradition. And since I am not a scholar of this, I am perfectly happy to agree. But there's a problem with poetry. And the problem with poetry is it is open to interpretation. Because it values beauty over clarity. I will give you an example. Now, this example is not in the Quran, just so you know. But it is a general example. Men. Treat your wives as the rooster treats the sunrise. Wow, it even rhymes. Treat your wives as the rooster treats the sunrise. Great. Beautiful. Wonderful. What does it mean? Does it mean to expect, to worship, to when you see her, to make an announcement? to be glad, to be happy at the start? Is it to indulge in the glory of her presence? Or does it mean that around 5.30 in the morning, you scream at your wife to get to work? Ah! 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 What does it mean? Now, as long as you've got Muhammad roaming the earth, You've got someone who could tell you what that means. Muhammad is jacked into the universe like Neo in the Matrix. He knows, and if he doesn't know, but he does know, but even if he doesn't know, he can go off, speak to the big guy, come back, and be like, this is what this means. And that will be 
what is known as the Hadith, the sayings, the commentaries, which start with Muhammad and then go on to other learned scholars. But Muhammad is a man, so Muhammad dies. Once Muhammad dies, you are relying on what other people say. So poetry is always open to interpretation. That's the problem. It's a disadvantage. Plus, poetry is a style which you have to be educated to understand. Not all, not all poetry is the same, right? Shakespearean poetry is very different than, than romantic poetry, which is very different from Virgil and the epic poetry, right? It's, you have to be educated to understand. This is a world where less than 5% of people are literate. And in the Arab world, it's even less. Most people are illiterate in the ancient world. Even in the Roman world and the Greek world, where they had centuries to get education right, you're never getting more than 30-40%. There's, no, there's not the education system for it. So in poetry, you are asking people to understand a mode they don't understand, to understand a concept they don't understand, and to understand words they may not understand. And then to get the interpretation. This is why scholars are very, very important in Islam. The Amman is very important. Because the ordinary person is not supposed to understand this poetry. Now, that's fine, but that is a disadvantage if you want people to convert to it. If you want people to follow it. If you want people to understand it. It is also written in Arabic. That's a problem. Why? Because only the Arabs speak Arabic and only 5% of Arabs can read Arabic. So if you want a book that everyone in the world can read, you don't do it in Arabic. You would have done it in Greek. That's the why the, the New Testament, the 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 Christian Bible is all was written all in Greek. Why? Because half the world could read it and the educated part of the other half of the Mediterranean world would be able to read it. That if you were an educated person in the Roman Empire, you could read Greek. And even if you were a regular person who just had basic literacy in the eastern, the Byzantine part, the eastern part of the Roman Empire, you'd be able to engage in the New Testament. That's a book designed for lots of people to read. The Quran just isn't. And it's not allowed, because it's a literal word of God, to be translated out of Arabic. Now, it will be, but it's not supposed to be, which means people have to learn Arabic if you want to do this right. You have to learn Arabic in order to read the Quran, which is a language you don't read in a style you don't understand, using words you may not know because it's not your native language, using idioms you definitely don't know because you're not Arab. You could see why the construction of the Quran is a problem if you want to convert lots of people. So, how do you be a Muslim? What does Islam kind of tell you about how to live the good life? And so, we do, we're doing the tradition, traditional history 101. I know it's fairly basic, but I don't know how many of you know any of this, so we're just going, we could go into a deep dive into the Quran, but we're basically just going to do the five pillars. We do the five pillars because they're the basic rules, and they're Basically, yes, you should learn the Sharia. You should learn the law. 
the traditions, the law. And you should definitely kind of hang out in the Hadith for a while, reading the commentaries. Um, English books, like Western books, don't usually have this for the most part. If, you're, if you go into law, you'll see this a lot. But the best example of this is kind of the Sun Tzu Art of War book. This may be the place that you'll see it because if you ever pick up the Sun Tzu Art of War book, you open it up. And I, I took classes. I, I was uh, in Hawaii. I was with uh, one of the scholars who did a translation of Sun Tzu's Art of, Art of War and is a, one of the big ones at Barnes & Noble. Um, and you open it up and there's a rule from Sun Tzu, right? Never meet the enemy where he is strongest, right? But then there's five, six comments on that from different scholars who are kind of restating this, the, the, the rule in a kind of different way or are commenting on it. What Sun Tzu is saying is dot, dot, dot. So that's the Hadith. The Hadith is, is when I said, what does it mean to treat your wife like the rooster treats the sunrise? Well, someone went to Muhammad and said, what does that mean? And Muhammad said something. And someone said, okay, that's great. And now, here's the problem with the Hadith. The Hadith is not written down for 300 years. The Arabs, not being illiterate people, have an oral tradition. And if you've ever played the game Telephone or Whisper Down the Lane, you know things get messed up along the way. And so, kind of like the old traditions, the, like um, the Odyssey and the Iliad, these were oral traditions. So the Hadith suffers from the problem that Muhammad said dot, dot, dot is historically problematic. It's not problematic in the religious sense because this is Jesus as well, right? If you take a look at um, the Nicene Creed, there's a lot of problematic stuff in there. The, the, the four Gospels are problematic, historically speaking, because they're also based on oral traditions. There is no written text from Jesus' life about Jesus' life. The first Gospel is Mark, and that's 20, 25 years after the death of Jesus. So all of these ancient world texts have that problem, that there's no standardization. You can't know, historically speaking, how good the standardization is. So a lot of it is tradition. That's not to say the tradition is wrong. It's just to say that you always have to be like, is it? Are you sure? And you, you, that's why you, that's why there are so many scholars of this stuff, you know? And then there's translations and mistranslations and words change and all that kind of stuff. Like Arabic today is not the same Arabic Muhammad spoke. Right? So, so you should learn the Sharia. You should learn the Hadith. You should read the Quran. But few people can read any of these things, be educated in these things, be scholars of these things. And so very few people read Arabic, as we talked about. And so basically Islam has a shortcut. And it is, look, look. Look, the goal is to get to heaven. Remember, St. Augustine for Christians had the same goal. Look, the goal is to get to heaven. Do these five things. If you do these five things, you're good. 
You should know all the other stuff. Yes. But if you do these five things, you're good. It's kind of the way Christians kind of use the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments become shorthand for all the laws. There are 631 commandments in the Old Testament, and yet the amount of people who I said, there are 10. Like, there are not 10. There's two entire books that are just laws. All those laws come from God. They are commandments. Right? The first commandment is said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. It's not the first commandment two books later to Moses. Well, it's Genesis and Exodus. But it's whatever many thousand years later. It's to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And so basically Islam goes, can you do these five things? And people said, okay, to get to heaven, to get to paradise, which is a Persian word for a walled garden. So it's already telling you, by referring to paradise, it's telling you, one, Islam is worldly because it's taken in words from the area, from other cultures, right, that, that are in the area. Zoroastrianism talks about paradise as a walled garden, right? It's taking this idea. Just like Christianity takes heaven as a platonic ideal. This is, there's nothing wrong with this. But it also tells you what people in a desert think would be glorious, would be the best way of spending their life. It's a place with lots of green and lots of water. It is the opposite of their lives. It's St. Augustine saying, heaven is Rome. You live in our crappy little town on the edge of the Roman province system. Heaven is the center of Rome. So, so you get five pillars, right? Do these five things. And people say, okay, I could do five things. And number one is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet. The Shaddada. We see this rewritten in the flag of Saudi Arabia and in the flag of ISIS. One God, Allah, Muhammad is the prophet. So it kind of tells you both motivating factors in the governments of Saudi Arabia and ISIS. How much this, this the Shaddada propels legitimism. Why? Why does that have to be number one? Well, the one God, Allah, is a response to polytheism. Remember, the Arabs are polytheist. So you have to stop polytheists from just adding another God. So you have to tell them there's one God. Okay, which one? Because I got a lot. It's Allah. Really? It's Allah? Of all of them? I like the, the marijuana and wine God. You're picking Allah? And Muhammad says, no, no, no. It's one God. Get rid of all the others. The others are fake. And it's Allah. That's a response to polytheism. You have to tell people who are polytheists. Because polytheists will just say, Allah? I got to worship Allah? Okay. Put him on the shelf. I got Allah. But I also have the wine God. I also have the marijuana God. I also have the ocean God. I also have the beer God. I got lots of gods. I got fertility gods over here for my wife, right? Uh, what's one more, right? So very strict right from the beginning. It also tells you it's monotheist and not monolatry. Remember the first commandment to Moses is, um, I am the Lord thy God, thou shall have no other gods, right? That's telling you in Moses' time, other gods exist. 
Yahweh is just the right God. But the other gods do exist. This is telling you there are no other gods. This is purely monotheism. And then the second part, Muhammad is the prophet, is a response to the Jesus problem. Right? Because you're taking polytheistic people and you're giving them a God and you're saying Muhammad is awesome and it is an easy thing for people to go, well, Muhammad is a God. I mean, they did it with Jesus, right? Jesus has magic powers. He can heal the sick, turn water into wine, come back from the dead. All of that is magical. All those are divine powers, which, let's face it, you have to have if you want to prove your God rocks in a polytheistic world. Right? You have to win. Otherwise, why would I follow this God? So it's easy for polytheistic people to turn a holy person into a god, right? The Egyptians did it with their pharaohs. They're not full gods. They're not, you know, the pharaohs are not part of the Big 12, but they have divine powers. And so what Islam is trying to do right from the very beginning is short-circuit that natural assumption to say, no, 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 no. Muhammad is a prophet. He is not a god. He is not divine. He is not the son of. He is not the right hand of. He is a prophet. That's it. He's a prophet. The last prophet, but a prophet. And that is a solution to the Jesus problem. So the Shaddada is a solution to problems. Number two. Pray five times a day facing Mecca. Very easy. Why? Why do you have to pray five times a day? Why not once? Why not once a week? And the answer is, it reminds you who time belongs to. Your day is broken up into parts around praying to God, praying to Allah. So time belongs to Allah. It is not your day. It's not yours. It's Allah's day. And the stuff you do in your day is the stuff you do between giving your time to Allah. So we're going to see this be a theme, right? This is showing you, you are not a, that important. You are the glory of Allah on earth. Yes, but Allah, it's Allah's universe, and you are playing in it. So the first thing is, number one is, there's one God, Allah, master of the universe, right? And Muhammad is correct. Muhammad is the prophet. So what Muhammad says is legitimate. Because you know you're going to get 10-year-olds who are like, why do I have to listen to Muhammad? It's like, well, he's the prophet. Listen to him. Okay. So Muhammad has legitimacy, right? This is the f number one. But two is, time belongs to God. It is not your day. Three alms to the community, including to the poor, to give charity. This is to remind you, and this is a very big one in capitalism, that it's not your money. Who does money belong to? It belongs to God. Who? You're rich? That's great. Why? Now, in Christianity, we have an old tradition called, there but for the grace of God go I. Maybe it's raining. It's pouring rain. You're driving down the school. On Highway 42. And there's some poor soul got a flat tire. They hit a pothole that was full of water. They didn't see it. Boom. Blew out their front right tire, the front passenger tire, right? And they're in the rain. 
and they're trying to get their tire with all the junk in the back seat. They're trying to get the they're in an SUV, so they have to take everything out of the back of the back, all the kids' toys and the dog toys. They gotta get underneath that that layer so they can pull out the seat, right? And it's pouring rain and it sucks, right? And what happens? You've seen this happen. I hope you haven't done this. But a car full of kids sees a giant puddle right near that poor guy and drives into that puddle, splashing that guy, right? And those kids drive off, laughing. <laughs> Why? Because it's not them. They didn't get splashed. They're not in the rain. They don't have a flat tire, right? They're better than that guy. But Christianity, old school Christianity, also knows that could be you. There is nothing separating you from being that person, from hitting that pothole, from blowing out that tire, from being that person, except the grace of God. Luck. Call it luck if you want. But in a more religious time, they called it the grace of God. You avoided that pothole. Or you hit that pothole, but your tire didn't blow out. And the idea is to be kind to those people who are not you, who have less than you. Why? Because you could be them. There is nothing. We live in a capitalistic world where people say, it's my money. No, it's not. You can't take it with you when you die. You made it. Congratulations. You made it because of several systems that helped you make it. You had a public education, maybe, or you got a private education, which meant your parents had enough money to get you that private education. You went to college. Well, only 10% of humanity has ever gone to college. Right? Only 30% of Americans right now in 2020 have a college degree. Any college degree. 30%. I've got th four college degrees. But only 30% of Americans have college degrees. Right? And I know plenty of boomers who don't. They didn't need one. They didn't go to college. They went to a trade school. They went to various different things. They didn't get in. They didn't do anything. They weren't right to work. Right? But they had unions that helped them. They had a government that would support them buying a house. They had low interest rates. They had all kinds of things that supported them. They were white, which was its own privilege because it opened doors that were shut to other people. They were second or third generation or longer immigrants, descendants of immigrants white immigrants, European immigrants, and not new, say, Latino or Asian immigrants, which would have had a harder time getting bank loans. There were men. Like I've said in a different podcast, a different episode, my mother, my mother, a white American woman in New York could not get a credit card in the 19-freaking-70s without a man's permission. That is not medieval Islam. That is 1970s New Effin York. Couldn't get a visa card. Are you kidding me?
But the idea was, well, you're not working, so you're not really paying. It's your husband. You couldn't get a bank account as a woman. Well, if you can't get a bank account, how do you get a loan? How do you get a home loan? How do you get a mortgage? And that's a white woman. If you're a black woman, how much harder is that? Right? And so what number three does, what the third pillar does is alms to the community. You are supposed to help the poor. You're supposed to help the community. This is a very patrician idea. This is a very Roman idea that you're supposed to help. Remember, Roman emperors build big things for the community. They gave jobs to the poor. Well, senatorial patricians did too. They're in a Roman Republic. That was your job. As a rich guy, you did things that made you famous, but also helped the community. If you go to Italy today, you will see lots of people's names, lots of rich guys' names on buildings that everyone can use. That's what this is. But it's not for the glory of yourself because it's for the glory of God. In the Roman world, remember, they're not Christians. So it's for the glory of their family. Whereas for Muslims or monotheists, it's for the glory of God. It's to remind you who money belongs to. And it's not yours. Why? Because God has giveth to you and God can take it away. How can God take it away? Kill you is the first way. There is no money in heaven. There is no body in heaven. There is no sex in heaven. There is your soul in heaven. If, if you're good enough to get there, by the way. So it's to remind you that you do not live alone. You are connected in a Confucian kind of style to the people around you. And you could be one of those poor people. Number four is to fast during Ramadan. To sacrifice. This makes total sense. Every religion has this. The polytheists had you sacrificed food, meat, right? Sometimes children, sometimes humans, war captives, slaves, right? Judaism has sacrifice too. Whether it's they took on the polytheistic ideas of the animal sacrifice, right? Or you have circumcision, or other means of sacrifice. Fasting is to remind you during Ramadan, you fast, um, you do not eat during the day, and there's different traditions about whether you drink or not water. Um, the problem is, is if you're living in the desert, you kind of do, I mean, it is a soccer if you can. And these are always if you can, right? You, sh you're, you know, but no one's asking like an eight-year-old to not drink water in the desert during the day, like when it's 112 degrees outside, right? There's, 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 there's practicalities to this. And so you sacrifice. The idea of this is who does stuff belong to? It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. It's to remind you how much you have. Have you ever opened up your refrigerator and been like seeing something that is full and be like, there's no food. There's only ingredients. Well, fasting during Ramadan is to remind you when you open up the refrigerator, holy moly, I have a lot of stuff. I not only have four walls and a roof and electricity, I have an icebox that keeps food fresh for days or weeks, 
and it's full of stuff that I can eat whenever I want. How lucky am I? Glory to God. Peace be upon him. That's the idea of the fasting, is to remind you of just how much you have, how much Allah has given you, because otherwise you start to think it's yours, that you earned it, that all the crap you're surrounded with. Have you ever looked in your closet and said there's nothing to wear? And it's full of stuff? Well, Allah's there to be like, dude, look at how much you have. Congratulations. You have parents who love you. You have a wife who cares about you. You have kids who respect you. Be happy with that. It's a cope, in many ways, fasting during Ramadan is a coping mechanism for people becoming settled and lacking the appreciation for just how hard life is for other people. And then there's five, the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. So this one doesn't quite fit into the who does something belong to. It's really like who does your culture belong to. But the idea is from the very beginning, Arabs are going to leave Arabia. How else are you going to spread Islam? And we're going to talk about this in the, in the episode about war. But the idea is you're going to leave. The problem with that is there's not enough Arabs. There are 10 to 15 million Coptic Egyptians in the world at this time. There are, I don't know, a million Arabs, maybe. Possibly if you took them all and put them in one place. Like they're desert nomadic peoples. There's not a lot of them. So if you, and now you spread them out, you're going to Persia where there's several million people. You're going to Mesopotamia where there's several million people. You're going to go to Egypt and then you're going to farther. Morocco is 4,000 miles away. If you go to the edge of the Maghreb, how many Arabs will there be? Who are you going to marry? You're going to marry a local person who is a Christian, who is a Jew, who is a polytheist. How are you going to maintain being an Arab? How are you going to convert people to being an Arab Muslim when you're the only one, when there's five of you in town? How do you do that? How do you stay in touch with who you are? How, and the idea is you go back to the hood. Yes. You have to leave Arabia. You have to leave the hood. You have to leave the neighborhood. Yes, find your glory out in the world. But don't forget who you are. Come back. And so the Hajj, H-A-J-J, the pilgrimage to Mecca, which is justified because Muhammad got kicked out of Mecca and came back, is the idea that you have to be sucked back in. It's to remind you what it is to be an Arab. Now, there's an asterisk to this because it changes. As the Arabs convert people, the Persians, right, the Egyptians, the Berbers in North Africa, Visigoths and Spaniards in Spain, right, those people are not going to become Arab. They might become Muslim, but like the Persians never become Arab. There's too many of them. 
the Persians remain. They become Muslim, but they remain Persian, a different ethnic group, right? With a different language and the whole thing. So, do they have to do a Hajj? Yeah, it's number five. You have to do a Hajj. Why? They've never been to Arabia. They're not from Arabia. And the idea then is that the Hajj changes, where originally it is to remind you, to connect you back to your Arabian roots, to connect you for who you are, so you don't forget, so you don't become Spanish, so you don't become Berber, so you don't become Coptic. You come back, and you, be, you, rem, you remind you who you are. I have never loved speaking New York-accented English as much as I do after living in Sweden, living in Portugal, and coming back. Because you speak English, or you're, you're speaking the native language, you're speaking some Portuguese, you're speaking some, some Swedish, and or all of your English is accented in the Swedish-British kind of timbre, or in Portuguese, you're getting, you're getting the Portuguese-English timbre, and then you come home and you get to forget about it. And you're like, oh, I am home. And that, that feeling is what the Hajj was supposed to be. But now you've converted people who are never Arab, who are never going to become Arab, who have no connection to Arabia. So what does the Hajj become? It becomes a celebration. We talked about this with Masa Musa. It becomes a celebration of diversity. This is what Malcolm X will be writing about. This is, to a lesser extent, what Richard Pryor talks about when he talks about being a black man in Africa and never hearing the N-word. That it's a celebration of diversity that Mal Malcolm X goes on Hajj and realizes, look at all these people. They're from all over the world. And they're united in one thing. No, but they're all equals. They're all equal before God. Now, Malcolm X knows their hierarchies. Malcolm X, if you read his biography, he's not, he's not naive about this, that all people are really equal. But at the same time, it's a world of diversity, of color, of shades that is different from the American white-black world he grew up in. And so the Hajj changes as Islam changes from how do you be, how to, to remind you how to be an Arab to a celebration of diversity. Look at just how big Islam is. Look at how diverse it is. Look at how many different people there are in it. And what do they all have in common? They all love Allah. All right, I think um, we're going to break here. I don't really know. I don't have my timer running, so I don't really know how long this has been going. But I'm going to break here. I'm going to have a part two episode on how women uh, are treated. Not treated so much as the role of women in Islam in three stages. In Remember, this is always ancient Islam. This is early Islam. This is not modern Islam. So, But we're going to break here um, so that we have more digestible units. All right? So be careful. Be safe. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.